Hey, welcome back to Naga Notes Podcast. I'm Jake Wiskirchen. I'm your host as always. And if it sounds like there's a little bit extra excitement to my voice, that's because I have a really cool announcement to make. But first, I want to mention the company that I co-own that continues to sponsor this podcast. It's Zephyr Wellness, and you can check out zephyrwellness.org and see what we're doing. And if you want to help us along our way, feel free. Reach out, info at zephyrwellness.org or info at nogginnotes.com. Uh, we welcome your emails, your, your, uh, your questions, uh, your inquiries, your requests to, uh, to address certain topics. So we'll take those. The announcement I get to make is that Noggin Notes was invited by, and we accepted the invitation, uh, Dash Radio to be on Real Life Radio, uh, courtesy of Blaze D'Angelo. And Blaze, I, I can't uh, say enough about how honored and grateful we are to be able to, to use your platform to share our information. It's, um, it's incredibly humbling anytime... We, uh, we get to reach out to more people, and Dash Radio has 10 million listeners. Um, hopefully, all 10 million of those listeners listen to this show on Real Life Radio, because that would be rad. Um, but like I've said repeatedly on various podcasts and in public spheres, um, this information just doesn't do any good when it's locked up inside my head. So... I figure, you know, if I can share the knowledge that I've gained through graduate school and through the many years of clinical experience and the thousands of hours of contact that I've uh, had and help other people who may not have the access or the means, uh, if we can do it for free through this, then everybody wins and society heals. And I think that's pretty awesome. So Thank you, and thank you to my partner with Naga Notes, Safiso, down in Cambodia. You've been awesome. Thanks for allowing me to go on this journey, and I just look forward to so much more impact upon the general public. It's flattering, and it's it's such an honor. Um, this episode is about emotional functioning, and I think it serves the foundation. It, it forms the foundation of virtually everything that I do. Uh, clinically speaking, and also the way that I walk through my life. So I hope you enjoy it. It's uh, it's it's very enlightening, and it's going to be the first in a long series uh, where we delve deep into emotional functioning. So um, info at nogginnotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org if you're interested in reaching out and uh, following up. In the meantime, enjoy the podcast. So we're going to go ahead and call this Emotional Functioning 101. Earlier in the Noggin Note series, uh, I think it was actually like the first two or three episodes that we did, I covered in a two-part series, if you can call two parts a series, I suppose it's a series, it's a double header at least, um, I covered the basic fundamentals of emotional functioning as it relates to cognitive functioning. And we're going to reboot that here because we realize that people don't always scroll back to the beginning through pages and pages of old episodes. And it's uh, it's broken into two parts. That was back when we were doing uh, shorter, briefer episodes, thinking that we could just meet people's attention spans these days You know where they are. But as it turns out over the last 18 months or so, We've realized that people crave a long-form uh, podcast. They, they actually want to go deeper with this stuff and get a little bit more text and nuance to it. I should say context and nuance to the ideas and theories behind 
why we present what we present. So this is an opportunity to review it. If you already have heard it or um, haven't heard it at all, this will be new to you, which is still very cool. And I want to hit it again for a couple of reasons. One, to present in a different format, which is a little longer. And then also uh, to give people the foundational um, perspective, I guess, or knowledge, foundational knowledge that's required to look at the world the way that I would like everybody to look at it, which is through the lens of emotional functioning. With that said, I might as well just start talking about what it is and stop building it up. Emotional functioning, as researched by a guy named Carol Izzard, who uh, has since died, uh, but he was a very instrumental researcher in the area of emotional functioning for about five decades uh, before his death very recently. He taught at the University of Delaware, and it's if you want to look him up, it's C-A-R-R-O-L-L, two R's, two L's, and then Izzard, like lizard, but without the L-I-Z-A-R-D. And he wrote, he literally wrote the book on uh, the psychology of emotions, and it's entitled The Psychology of Emotions. So if you want to look that up, it's it's very old. I think it was written in 1991, 90, something like that. But um, it's still very expensive to buy. So if you look it up on uh, Amazon, you're going to find it for a couple hundred bucks, which is uh, shockingly high to me. But it's that important. You can find used copies in the $50, $60, $70 range. Um, if this stuff interests you, I highly recommend starting there. Um, it's a very easy read. It's a textbook, but it's super easy to thumb through and, and it's not, um, it doesn't build on itself. So you can just turn to the chapter on anger, for example, and look up what he's studied and said and written about anger. You can flip to the the page on, uh, you know, uh, jealousy and find that out. So as it turns out, jealousy is not one of the 10 core emotions that he, researched and and found to be unique and discreet. Um, I'm going to list those off here in a second, but then what we'll do is we'll, we'll explore them in depth in subsequent episodes so that you can get a, a feeling. You won't get a feeling. <laughs> I'm going to explain that in a second too. What you're going to get is a sense uh, or an understanding of why they're different and why it's important to separate them out. So what Izzard discovered is that these 10 emotions are unique and discrete, D-I-C-R-E-T-E, uh, like uh, separated, not D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, which is um, quiet but uh, and, and sneaky, but uh, discrete, uh, unique one to the next. Uh, what he found is that neurologically, they all serve their own important adaptive function. And what do we mean by adaptive? Well, when we have to adapt to something, we have to flex around to it, we have to do something with it. So what the emotions do in our brain is they tell us how to in- interact with our environment. The environment is always throwing things at us, uh, stimuli from various angles. And if you listen to any of the podcasts, you you hear me reference uh, you know, intaking information, stimulating the brain, you know, stuff like that all the time. And, and it's because our brains are always receiving information, processing it, and then telling the rest of our body what to do. Chief among that is your emotional functioning. Emotions come from a part of the brain known as uh, the limbic system, L-I-M-B-I-C, if you're looking it up. Hopefully, if you're driving, you're not 
looking things up, but uh, maybe if you're stuck in traffic, you can, but uh, just make sure you don't get a ticket. So the limbic system is, uh, it, it rests somewhere in the middle and rear of our brain, just above the brain stem and moving toward the middle. Uh, and then in the front is where our, our thinking happens. That's our cognition, our reason and whatnot. So in the, in the prefrontal cortex, you have your thinking and your reason and your logic. In the middle and rear part of the brain is your, your emotion. And they don't function simultaneously. What happens is they go back and forth real fast, and they don't shut off completely. But, for example, if you encounter something that stimulates an emotional response, the limbic system will light up, your frontal lobe will quiet down, it won't, like I said, it won't shut off completely, and you'll feel something. And then following that feeling, your brain uh, says, hey, do, do something in response to this. Now, the feeling component only lasts about three to nine seconds and then the event that triggered it has uh, presumably passed. So a good metaphor that I use for this, uh, I, when I'm doing this, I usually teach it on a whiteboard. And the whiteboard is very useful, but I don't have it here. So you're just going to have to bear with me and use your imaginations. Imagine in your head two tanks of fluid, and they're connected by a common pipe. A uh, pipe in between them at the bottom. So the fluid and on either side is, uh, you know, it's full in one tank, but uh, there's pressure on the other one, so it's diminished in the other. And so as the uh, tanks go back and forth, they elevate or, uh, or lower their fluid levels through that, that pipe at the bottom. Imagine the tank on the left labeled with a T for thinking, and the tank on the right labeled with an F for feeling. So if we're going through our day and you're listening to my voice and you're driving in your car or you're on the treadmill or you're cooking dinner or whatever you're doing and you're listening to this podcast, what you're what you are doing is you're using your frontal lobe, your thinking, you're using reason and logic. I'm I'm explaining some very basic neuroscience in an oversimplified fashion. Uh, you're digesting the information. You're considering things. Now. In that instance, the left-hand tank, the T tank, the thinking tank, would be very high. It's it's full of fluid. It's it's uh, it's it's operating. It's running. It's it's a it's a full volume. Now, um, as you move through the day, things happen to you. So let's pretend, for instance, that uh, if you're driving in your car and a car cuts you off, or if you're in the kitchen and you uh, accidentally burn yourself on the pan, or uh, what was the other thing I used? Um, if you're on the treadmill. And um, you you accidentally uh, stumble. You you kick your toe on the on the the treadmill, the front of it, um, the housing of the treadmill. What's going to happen is is your your brain is going to register something from a gland called the amygdala or the amygdalae. There's two of them. And the what the amygdala does is it's responsible for your fight or flight reflex. So that one engages and it sends a message through the limbic system that it, it, it ends up excreting uh, various fluids uh, based on what the stimulus is. And those fluids come from various glands in your, in your limbic system. There's also several glands. There's the thalamus and the hypothalamus and the hippocampus and so forth. So um, the limbic system in that moment fires up. The frontal lobe shuts down a little bit. And those tanks of fluid that I described for you, they invert very quickly. So feeling goes up, thinking goes down, and you go, ow, or holy cow, the car just cut me off, or ouch, I stubbed my toe. Um, three to nine seconds later, the moment has passed. 
the traffic has normalized again. You've uh, looked at your finger and you realize that you haven't burned it so badly. Uh, you've regained your balance on the treadmill or you've, you've hit stop on the treadmill. And we would expect then, after those few seconds and after the event has passed, that reason would return. So slowly that, that left-hand tank builds back up again, the T-tank with the thinking, builds back up again, and feeling diminishes. So you're returning to reason. And in that moment, you can evaluate what's going on and respond appropriately. So you put your foot on the brake, you check your passengers, make sure they're okay, nobody's head hit the, the dashboard. Um, and then on the treadmill, you uh, take a breath, you check your ankle, make sure it's not you know too sore. Um, or if you're in the kitchen, you grab a, a piece of ice and put it on your finger. So now you're acting with reason again. And this is very, very important because when we go through life, we want to acknowledge where the feeling component comes in and when it pulls us out of our logic mode. And we don't want to act out of feeling. We don't want to act out of emotion because when we act out of emotion, what ends up happening is we often do things that we regret. So we want to be mindful of what it is that we're feeling, why we're feeling it, and then return to reason so that we can proceed in a, in a reason-based manner so that we can make wise decisions and not regrettable decisions. So if this makes sense, please raise your hand. Good. Everybody got it except the two in the back. Thanks. Um, I'm just totally kidding right now. I can't see my audience. I'm talking into a microphone in my garage, but, but I hope that that made sense. If it doesn't, um, you can always reach out to me, uh, shoot me an email info at noggannotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org. And, um, and I can explain things, but if we go back to the, to the brain now, so, so picture, picture in your head, you've got these two tanks and you've, you've gone back to reason. You can move through your life. Um, what ends up happening in that moment where you feel something and the tanks invert and, and feeling happens. Usually when I do this, by the way, I, I, I throw something at the person I'm teaching and, uh, and I, uh, I trigger, uh, the emotion of surprise in that person. And then I say, see, you didn't have any control over what I just did. You, you flinched. Um, but you didn't take any time to evaluate whatever it is that I throw. Usually it's a marker cause I'm using a dry erase board. So if I throw a marker at somebody, in the middle of this very reason-based presentation on neuroscience or whatever, the, the person flinches or sometimes people catch it out of the air. Uh, everybody laughs and moves on. And, and I say, see, you lost control there for a second. You, you didn't have any control over whether or not you felt surprise. All you have control over by your frontal lobe, by the way, your thinking is how much and how long you feel that surprise. So sometimes people will stay in emotions longer than just a few seconds and we wonder why that happens. Why, why do people stay in emotion longer than a few seconds? Why are people walking around perpetually angry? Why are some people slipping into depression? Why are they constantly anxious? Well, if the environment is not triggering that, what could it possibly be? Well, as it turns out, our brains can also generate fluid in the limbic system based on where we focus our thoughts. So depending on what kind of attention we give certain things, we can actually alter our own brain chemistry. So imagine this for a moment. Think of the happiest time you've ever had in your life. Just imagine it for a second. And if you're driving, please drive safely while you're imagining. Don't close your eyes or anything. I don't want you to drive off the road. Uh, that'll trigger more emotion that we don't, we don't need to feel. Um, but imagine a really happy experience. It could be a championship. It could be a birth. 
It could be uh, a marriage. It could be a job promotion, any, anything, whatever, whatever a really happy moment is. Are you happy? Are you smiling right now, imagining that thing? Chances are pretty good that you are. Now, if you are, what you've done is you've quite literally altered your own brain chemistry to have happy chemicals, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, endorphins, whatnot, floating through your brain. That uplifts our mood. So simply by thinking about something, you're going to feel whatever you associate with it. Now, similarly, if I, you know, if I'm driving in my car and I've got no reason to be alarmed, I'm just driving down the road, there's, you know, plenty of space among everybody, traffic's flowing well, it's a sunny day, green lights and, you know, rainbows, then I'm, I'm probably in a pretty content spot. I'm, I'm, I'm neutral or I'm, I'm nudging toward happy. But if in that moment I allow my brain to drift towards something sad, maybe a, maybe the death of a loved one or the death of a pet or uh, something I lost or uh, some tragic episode or, or I, my mind drifts toward um, polarizing politics or something like that, I'm going also to trigger those same chemicals in my brain that I don't want to feel. So if I don't want to feel sad, I don't want to feel scared, I don't want to uh, allow myself to slip into uh, anger or contemptuous thoughts and feelings, then I want to be mindful of where I direct my attention. So there's two ways then that we can feel something emotionally. One is through the environment doing it to us, and two is our thoughts about something that's not happening. We can also change that by our thoughts and our impressions about what it is that's happening presently, but I'm talking instantaneous things like, you know, a snake drops in your lap or, you know, you look down and you're, you're, you're suddenly bleeding or, you know, something like that. We don't necessarily have control of the, um, the impulsive nature of our emotions. And uh, I'll pause there for a second because it's really important to note that impulsivity comes from emotional functioning. Again, when you don't have control over whether or not you feel something, when you feel it, you tend to act out of that, that space unless you're aware enough to control it. Um, one illustration of this is that I still struggle with impulsive uh, notions. I don't give in to them very often, but uh, one of the ones that I continually struggle with, even as an adult at 40 years old, is when I'm in the grocery store, one of our 10 emotions is excitement. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll list the 10 here at the end, but one of our emotions is excitement, and the impulse of excitement can get us into a lot of trouble. Um, the trouble that I avoid because I notice it in myself and I just choose not to give in is when I'm in the grocery store and I'm standing in the paper goods aisle, and I look down the aisle, and uh, for those of you who don't know me or don't know anything about me, I've I played sports my whole life, and I still think I'm some sort of athlete, even though I'm old and I've had knee surgeries and I'm more or less broken and my hair's gray and what, <laughs> but, uh, but I'll stand at the front of the, uh, the uh, paper goods aisle. I don't know why that's so funny to me as of gray hair man's matters to my athletic, athletic ability, but, um, I'll stand at the end of the paper goods aisle and I'll imagine myself sticking my arm out and sprinting down the aisle, knocking off every single paper towel, uh, toilet paper, uh, you know, plates. And for me, that just seems wildly amusing <laughs> and I don't know why, uh, maybe it's because we all have this inner need to go like be destructive, but I don't want to be too destructive. Like we can always pick up those paper towels and put them back on the, on the thing and you know, they'll still be purchased, but I have to override that impulse every single time. Um, so knowing my own emotional functioning and knowing how I tick is imperative to me, not making a 
you know, an ass of myself in public. <laughs> um, if I did give in to that impulse, or I was I was unaware of it, or I um, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just ignorant to it, or I haven't been educated, or I don't know myself well enough. I'll give in to that impulse and I'll go sprint down that aisle and knock all the paper goods off. And if I'm doing it with my wife next to me, she's going to be pretty embarrassed. Uh, I'm probably going to suffer some consequences for that. Maybe the store manager 86s me from the store. I, I don't know. Um, but at bare minimum, I have the awareness enough to know that it's not socially acceptable to go running down the aisles, knocking things off the shelf just for my own entertainment. So I notice that impulse, I override it and I channel it elsewhere. I, you know, maybe I'll make a joke about it to, to deal with that, uh, that emotion. So, um, impulse comes from emotionality and, uh, and we want to know, we want to notice when that happens in us. So let's go back to the, 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 um, the tanks here and the, and the lack of control. So we don't have control over whether or not we feel something. We do have control over how much and how long we feel it. And we have control over, um, what we do in response once we feel it. So if the environment's doing something to me or my own attention is, is bringing something to me or have an impulse that comes seemingly from nowhere, my job is to recognize it and then do something with it out of a reason-based perspective, not an, an emotion-based perspective. Because if I act out of that emotion, I'm going to get myself in trouble. If I act out of my anger, I might get in a fight and land in jail. If I act out of my excitement, I might just get embarrassed or I might get kicked out of the store. So I want to notice that stuff. And here's the key. Emotions are a wave. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end to every emotion that we feel. This is very, very important. And I, I, I teased a little bit about, you know, why do people stay in emotion longer than a few seconds? Well, here's why. In an emotional wave, if you keep in mind that it's temporary, you allow yourself to feel it fully. The beginning can tell you that something's coming. And these are very brief, by the way. They're, you know, they're only a few seconds. The middle is where you lose control. And we don't like losing control. And I'll get to that in a minute. And the end is where it's complete. Now, the, the completion is key because if I can tolerate one emotion, let's say sadness, it's one of the, the 10 discrete emotions. If I can learn to tolerate my sadness in one circumstance, I can then apply that lesson to other circumstances later and know that I'll get through it. Therefore, I've taught myself that I can have an emotional experience and the world isn't going to spin off its axis or I'm going to die or something else catastrophic. I can feel, I can lose control, and I can complete that motion and everything's going to be okay. I survived. Usually I learn from it and I move forward. For people who don't know how to do this and they stay in emotion longer than a few seconds, chances are pretty good that they don't know how to let go of that control acknowledge what they're feeling is okay, in fact, useful, and then ride down through the, the other side of the wave. Generically speaking, when we talk about anxiety, we're talking about focusing and fixating, and that's very key, fixating our thoughts on something in the future that hasn't happened yet that scares us. It comes from fear. Fear is one of the ten. If we fixate our thoughts on something that's scary, we're going to have scary juice pumping through our brains and it tells us to be alert tells us to be to be on edge generically speaking that's what we call anxiety so when i'm fixating my thoughts on the on something in the future that has yet to occur and i have no control over it i'm going to feel anxiety on the other end of the spectrum is depression and that's 
generically speaking, of course, and this is just a metaphor to, to represent it. Generically speaking is when I'm fixating my thoughts on something in the past that I can't do anything about because it's already done. And if I fixate my thoughts there, again, where I focus my attention influences my emotions. If I do it for too long, I have a mood. If I do that for too long, I have a mood disorder. If it interrupts my life and causes me problems and whatnot. So if I'm fixating my thoughts on something in the past that I, don't, I can't do anything about because it's already gone, we generically would call that depression. So we want to stay right in the present. Okay? We want to we enjoy life as it presents itself, embrace these emotions fully, and then let them go so that we can move on to the next moment and the next moment, moment by moment, go through life, experiencing life on life's terms as it presents itself to us. But if we've practiced bailing out, or we've practiced staying in emotion because uh, that's just how we were raised or whatever, then we're going to get used to that and that will become our new normal. So what I'm inviting the listening audience to do is consider the idea that your normal, your new normal, if, if you're somebody who's been struggling with these, these conditions for a while, your new normal should actually be balance. It should be present focused. It should be mindfully where you are, not where you aren't. And that could be the past or the present. I mean, I'm sorry, it could be the past or the future. But here's the thing. If you're in the past or the future, mentally speaking, you're missing the present, which then can really cause more anxiety and more depression, and it creates this stacking issue. So we want to mindfully focus ourselves to be where we are and then allow that to be okay. So how do people practice bailing out of emotion? How do you, how do you get to a place where you're emotionally avoidant? Well, typically it happens for people who are raised in uh, environments where there's lots of chaos, turbulence, abuse, neglect, trauma, history can do this. Um, even if it's not necessarily in the home environment with parents, it can happen through bullying on the playground and a whole bunch of things that tell children not to feel. They tell them that their feelings don't matter. Uh, they don't validate, and that's and that's what we call emotional invalidation. Imagine being raised in a in an environment where repeatedly, over and over and over and over again, for years and years, you're told that you you can't cry, you can't express, you're not allowed to do that. You know, and and, the, and I think I think as dudes we get this a little bit heavier than than the women do. Um, as as men, we get told you know boys shouldn't cry, and you know turn off the tears and stop being weak and all that stuff. And then we judge weak as being bad. It's not bad. It's just, it's just a thing. Like, in fact, in our weakness, typically that's where the most learning occurs. And as I mentioned, you don't have any control over whether or not you feel something that is weakness defined. Not having control is weakness. There's nothing bad about it. And we, what we want to do is we want to validate those experiences. We want to, we want to start to self-validate. We say, this is okay. I know what I'm feeling, and it's perfectly allowable. In fact, it's neurologically necessary, and physiologically, it's required. So um, let me give you an example of what else is physiologically required. You have to go pee. And if you don't go pee, you've got big problems, right? But similarly, we can override the need to go pee with our frontal lobe. I can focus my attention elsewhere. I can think different thoughts. And if I need to, you know, I can't go pee because I'm in the middle of a traffic or I'm on a long plane ride and the bathroom's broken or I need to get through a lecture. I can override my need to, to urinate. But urination is really necessary. It evacuates waste from the body, right? So we need to pee. But with our frontal lobes, and especially if we're like super smart, we can override that for a much longer time. Similarly, the frontal lobe can override 
the, the need to emote. So for crisis situations, it's not wise to go screaming one's head off when the, the curtains catch on fire. What we want to do is notice it, acknowledge it, move through it, and then with reason, act appropriately. But if you don't have time to notice it, acknowledge it, validate, move through it, you just act. But we want to know, holy cow, the curtains are on fire. Go grab water and throw it, right? But eventually, at some point, we want to emote. We want to offload that. We want to debrief. Because if we don't, and we override that for too long, let's say we're raised in chaos, we're raised in a traumatic situation, um, we're raised in an emotionally invalidating environment, eventually, we will emote. Because the limbic system doesn't quit working simply because we don't want to feel. It keeps working. Because the environment keeps throwing stuff at us, and our thoughts keep thinking things, and we keep considering stuff that's happened, and we anticipate things in the future. So we keep feeling, just like your bladder keeps working, and it keeps storing up urine, at some point you will pee. And if you don't want to pee down your leg in the middle of math class, you're going to find a way to offload that in an appropriate fashion. And similarly, you will emote. And if you don't want to emote and offload your stuff in the wrong way, like say through violence or drug addiction or alcoholism or a psychotic disorder, you need to find a place to offload those emotions appropriately. And the best, the best way to do that is just to acknowledge them. Because neurologically speaking, once you say, this is happening to me and it's okay that it's happening to me, then you're fine. Emotions are neither good nor bad. They are simply neutral and they are informative. So I'm going to list off the 10 here in closing. And a lot of people will notice and they'll say, well, seven of those are negative and three are positive. And it's, it's not like that. They're just simply informative. So here we go. Anger, joy or happiness, fear, sadness, shame, guilt, disgust, contempt, excitement, and surprise. There's your 10. I'm going to go into them in greater depth and detail later on in uh, subsequent podcasts. But for now, I just want you to consider the idea that thinking and feeling are not the same thing. They have very different purposes, and we have to acknowledge both of them. Uh, If we don't, we do so at our own peril. But ultimately, we want, to, we want to learn this stuff so that we can process appropriately, engage the, the environment appropriately, and it'll improve our relationships. One last note. Something that Izzard discovered was that regardless of culture, regardless of civilization or uh, primacy, all people across the world have these 10 emotions. And you notice what was not listed in there were things like jealousy and envy and love and frustrated and overwhelmed. And that's because they're either hybrids of emotion or hybrids of emotions and thoughts, which we absolutely can have, but they're not feelings. So we don't want to run around talking about um, how jealousy is a feeling or I feel overwhelmed or I feel like the room's the wrong color because those are not pure, clean, discrete emotions. And if we make the mistake of saying the wrong thing and saying, I feel like you're not listening to me, I hope you're listening to me, it's been almost a half hour, Um, what I've done is I've handcuffed myself from being able to do anything about it. Remember, we can't change whether or not we feel something, but we can change our thinking. I can change my thoughts, I can change my beliefs, I can change my mind anytime I want. But if I make the mistake in language of saying, I feel like you're not listening to me, and then that gives you no no recourse to rebut that. I've just handcuffed myself and said, nope, that's my feelings. It's what I feel. I can't change it, which would be true, but it's not a feeling. 
It's a belief. It's an interpretation. It's a thought. It's something other than a feeling. So we want to be very precise with our language and stop saying I feel when what we really mean is I think or I believe or it seems to be or, or there, it appears or whatever. If you want more on that, there's a YouTube video on the Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel called Saying I Feel is Ruining Your Ability to Think. It's me. I'm doing the video. Big surprise. But um, go check that out. It takes that concept in a little bit. Uh, takes it a little bit deeper. Um, but keep that in mind, that thinking and feeling are not the same, and we need to be careful with our language when we talk about it. So I hope this was helpful for you. I um, wish you all well. I wish you great mental wellness, as always. And on behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, I thank you for listening, and I'll see you back next time when we talk about emotions in depth. Have a good one. <laughs>